Hello, everyone. Welcome to Collisions YYC Current and Critical. I'm your host, Tyler Chisholm. Thank you for joining me today for another good old fashioned chat. Today's show is brought to you in partnership with State Corporate Training. Thank you to Craig Hass and his team for their ongoing support of the Collisions YYC podcast. Leadership, a term that conjures up everything from images of the hard charging Hollywood portrayal to the introverted, quiet CEO who emerges from their office with a magical path forward for the organization. No matter what comes to mind for you, I guarantee it'll be different than it was pre pandemic. After the past 18 months, the demand on leaders at all levels of the organization has changed. No longer can you rely on technical expertise alone. People on your team need you to be more human, and more importantly, human in a way that matters to them. Through my interviews with the team at SAIT, I was introduced to a more balanced approach to leadership, one that was truly a game changer for me and my perspective around what it is to be a successful leader. They call it the six leadership intelligences. Adaptability, emotional, collaborative, social, psychological, and digital intelligences. At first blush, aside from a couple, you may be asking yourself, wait a minute, what do these have to do with leadership? I'm here to tell you everything. We live in a world with a rapidly changing landscape that requires the need for human connection that has never been more important. How can you manage change if you are unable to create deep, safe, and meaningful connections with people around you? Simply put, you can't. Whether it's an entire organization, a division, a field office, or a small team, if you're not equipped with the intelligence you need, all the smarts in the world won't bring a group of people together to make the opportunities and challenges facing your organizations today. SAID is here to help you and your teams put together a package to put the skills in place for a safe, inclusive, and high-performing culture. To find out more about what they can do for you and your organization, please check them out at sait.ca slash corporate training, or better yet, open up your email and contact Craig Hess directly at craig.hess at sait.ca, that's H-E-S-S. He would love to chat with you and walk you through your needs and how they can put together a solution for you and your team. Hello and warm collisions, YYC. Welcome to Mr. Grant Stram. How are you doing, Grant? Doing great. Thanks for having me on your show. Oh, my pleasure. I'm looking forward to chatting. You uh, you live in a world that I'm personally curious about. And, you know, I feel very fortunate in the show. I get to talk to interesting people doing cool things in our province and, and abroad. But we're going to talk about hydrogen today. You're the chairman at Proton Technology. So I always love to give everybody the elevator ride. We're jumping in. We're going 30 floors. Tell us what a Proton, technology, Proton Technologies is all about and we'll pick it up from there. In short, we can repurpose oil and gas infrastructure and wells to produce very large volumes of low-cost hydrogen. So we do that by injecting oxygen into the oil field. Reactions happen that liberate a whole bunch of hydrogen from the water that's already down there. And then we can filter out what we want, just the hydrogen, and either do that at surface or downhole. But the net result is we can do it with zero emissions, nothing at surface, kept at surface, except for the hydrogen. Interesting. And that's, so this is, this is a bit of a, I'm going to be bold to say a breakout from some of the conversations as, as I've gone down and I always like to never make any assumptions, but I started with, well, what is hydrogen? And then I got into gray hydrogen and then blue and then green and started to peel back all the layers. And at every point though, there was still an emissions challenge. There was still, what do we do with this leftover byproduct, which you're talking about, not even like, let's not worry about it. Let's just leave it where it belongs, which is quote unquote underground. Mm -hmm. Yeah, leave it in the ground where it starts. That's um, absolutely a big part. In fact, we can grab extra CO2 emissions from the neighbors and co-inject them with the oxygen and leave that in the ground too. And in that way, the hydrogen we make is actually has a negative carbon intensity. So that's interesting when carbon border adjustments come up and things like that. 
I think it will get a price premium on that basis. And to be clear, is this, are you in prototype phase? Are you guys like de- well down the path? Like where are we in the, in, in the scope of this being a very real feasible, you know, energy, energy source with, you know, negative carbon. That's, that's a really interesting kind of paradigm for sure. The value proposition starts to stack up on top of each other really quick. We've been uh, producing hydrogen at modest rates for a few okay. years. And the, the big difference for us is going to happen when we go to pure oxygen injection instead of air injection. Okay. So that's set to commence within the next few months. And our anticipation is we'll be able to supply commercially at, at increasing scale. And the scale is basically dependent on how fast we can get oxygen into the ground. So it, it, that translates into how much money we can throw at construction of air separation units and things like that. At first, we'll be trucking in oxygen. But oxygen's everywhere in the air, so if you can just separate it at site from the air and inject that, then the cost goes down even further. And from that perspective, that's an extra step in terms of there's a mechanical there's 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 a mechanical or chemical process happening, but the energy that that requires to produce is still not offset. Like, does that does that contribute to the fact that you're you're taking energy now to get this negative experience, or is that a very efficient process? Or I'm I'm reaching way back into my science degree, which has been very dusty for many years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we we basically grab about fifteen percent of the hydrogen that we produce and use that to power the air separation unit. Oh, so if we run it through a turbine and make electricity on site, then we can power an air separation unit that gives us the oxygen we need. But uh, yeah, in terms of if, if it was supplied by hydroelectric power or something else, um, then that extra 15% of hydrogen could could also be available for sale. But it's it's attractive economically either way. So you guys, this is a very self-contained kind of operation when I'm, I'm thinking on site. And is this, a, is this like when you talk about oil and gas infrastructure, is this a SAG-D kind of well site? I was on your website looking at your videos. That's kind of was like, is that what you're using as an existing SAG-D um, platform or, or well site, I guess, to make it simple? It can be. Our, our initial one is not okay. SAG-D. But, uh, you know, the neighbors are doing SAG-D, so it's, it's kind of, um, those wells are already thermally completed. The older pads are already, you know, more or less um, reaching their economic yeah. limits. So we can step in and use the remaining oil in place as fuel for the hydrogen com- combustion uh, or productive reactions. Okay, interesting. So. Well, let's let's pause that for a second because that's a, before we start breaking apart the the different types of hydrogen. We talk about commercial application. You talked about you know enough to supply commercially. What's the what's the demand out there for hydrogen right now? Is that on the rise? Has that been limited because of supply? Like kind of what's the dynamic in terms of where this gets used? And we can talk about like from powering vehicles to kind of feedstock in a lot of different chemical processes. Where are we at kind of in that demand cycle? Sure. Well, we're, we're not mostly focused on the existing use yeah. cases. So if somebody has a fertilizer plant or an oil refinery, generally they have on-site hydrogen production and or long-term contracts for their hydrogen supply. So we're just kind of leaving that alone, but we know that the electricity market is one that's quickly expanding. And because we can produce hydrogen cheaper than natural gas, uh, that allows us to make profitable electricity, especially in districts where Carbon taxes are a factor, like Canada. So um, baseload electricity is a giant market with massive infrastructure and customer base, uh, scaling up to thousands or tens of thousands of tons a day into that market is something that's um, much more straightforward than having to build out an entire infrastructure for trucking, truck fleets and all that stuff. We're happy to divert 
hydrogen volumes in those directions, but it's not going to be the main um, offtake agreements that okay. butter so our bread. Obviously, that's a bigger play and a bigger need. And I grew up, I grew up out east. I grew up in Quebec, which has a significant hydroelectric. Or so there's an opportunity to create electricity in a different format. But when you think of places like Western Canada, where we've got wind, we've got solar, but we're, that's not going to meet and not. I think all energy is, is needs to be included, but that's not going to meet our demand. So when you think about this, this is a way to pivot the way we're creating that electricity now, and which is only going up. We're only having an increased demand for electric uh, electricity. Yeah, I agree. So this is something that's massively scalable, not only to the existing customers, um, anybody who's burning natural yeah. gas or coal, they might be sort of making ends meet today. But by 2030, when the carbon tax in Canada hits $170 a ton, it's just it just makes the entire marketplace industrially uncompetitive. Uh, we have to find ways to decarbonize our grid. Otherwise, um, the cost of living will go way up. And, you know, it's it's just a, a massive burden and undertaking. Um, and I do agree that sort of... Wind and solar have their place, but it's it's difficult to economically transition a, a grid towards that. Um, we have the benefit of being able to do this at very large scale and more or less generally leveraging significant existing infrastructure. Interesting. How much we we live in such a we we such a live in a world of such energy abundance. When you talk about not that long down the road of all of a sudden not always realizing the impact that these increase in costs are going to like can facilitate into society and to create this huge disparity in who has access to energy and doesn't how much of a change of the grid or I've, I've had some guests on talk about like, wow, we've got a really outdated platform here. Like it's getting old. We're maybe lacking the funds to modernize it. How much do those two things need to go hand? I know we're maybe stretching away from the hydrogen conversation, but if you think about this as a big chain of events, how much, how much input or how, like how much, how soon do we need to get on that <laughs> to make sure that we can meet these demands as this world changes? Oh, I think there's quite a rush. So, you know, there are goals for, I think it's um, by 2025, which is like basically two years from now, we're supposed to be 10% zero emissions vehicles. So, and this is sales, not the existing fleet, of course. And it, and it escalates from there until it's 100% zero emissions vehicles by 2035. So, um in order to start scaling up the grid at the community scale and dealing with the different uh, challenges, hydrogen distri distribution, or expanded electricity supply, um, those investments have to come fairly quickly. When you talk about, 20, in you talk about 2035 in the, in, the, in the scope of large infrastructure projects, which we're probably not the best at the last 10 years, if you think about big infrastructure changes, that's kind of a, that's like, it's literally tomorrow. <laughs> like, let's be honest. <laughs> Yeah, it is. So one of the things that we can do is definitely um, make good use of the existing infrastructure. So decarbonizing the grid, large scale supply. You know, if there's a, a coal fired power plant that's going down, it already has a big transformer, a grid interconnect, an environmental footprint. So if you just put a hydrogen turbine right beside that, then it gets much more straightforward to, to, to make those changes. And then I think we'll also be doing quite a bit of moving hydrogen around as okay. liquid in trucks. So um, right now, fueling stations in people's communities and uh, at bus depots and everything else, a lot, a lot of that can shift relatively quickly towards hydrogen fueling stations. And if the hydrogen supply is dramatically cheaper than diesel and gasoline, it doesn't become just an environmental mandate. Consumers go, well, I can either spend like $150 filling up my F-350 or I can get a hydrogen fuel cell pickup truck and fill it up for 
$20 or $10 or something like that. So um, that's going to be, I think, the big driver. I, I sometimes liken it to the transition from whale oil to kerosene where uh, it didn't happen because everyone loved whales. It happened because it was way cheaper to buy the kerosene. And similar today, I don't think it's going to happen in earnest until it's obviously way cheaper to go with um, zero emissions electricity production and zero emissions hydrogen fuel. Yes, I don't want to be like cynical, that. but the almighty dollar is a significant driver in this. It's kind of the example of you know what you answer at the focus group of what you would do, and then what you do when the dollars in your wallet are actually drivers for that. And it, it is you know versus kind of the pushing it on people, or they'll start to pull it themselves once that once the financial like story makes sense. Uh, curious, this is something that's now going down my own rabbit hole. EVs, we've got electric vehicles, we've got battery-powered cars, we've got hydrogen fuel cell cars. Everything I've read and people I've talked to, the hydrogen fuel cell sounds like such a better approach. And I'd be careful with the word better, probably I'll get some hate mail, but that's okay. That means people are listening. Uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't mind. I'm curious <laughs> with your views of yeah. like, we've gone so so aggressive and we've got some very leading global brands that have made the electric car and the big battery pack this the sexy thing to have is that the right path are we are we are we kind of pot committed on that or is there an opportunity to look at hydrogen cell you know technology as a different path for to fuel these ev vehicles we're going to start seeing yeah there is so i i actually view it kind of like Electric cars are good enough for most of us. If we're driving around, even visiting people around us in a big province like Alberta, not a big deal. At minus 35, maybe the range goes down a bit and you have to plan differently. But, you know, it's I, I we ordered cyber trucks for our field site. There's a whole bunch of things that are like really great, in my opinion, about electric vehicles, especially the lack of air pollution. But theoretically... If you, for example, have 800 kilograms or 1,000 kilograms of batteries in your in your brand new Model S Plaid, um, you should be able to cut down the mass of the vehicle by adding maybe 200 kilograms of batteries and then a fuel cell and an onboard uh, hydrogen tank. So theoretically, the performance of fuel cell vehicles should be higher. I think the high-end bicycles are doing this, drones are doing this. Anything that's sort of high performance is doing this. Maybe there's going to be more improvements in battery technology, and maybe batteries are just good enough for most applications for a lot of us. But if you're hauling around a backhoe on a trailer all day, all over northern Alberta all winter, um, I don't think you're going to be picking a, a battery truck. You're going to be picking a hydrogen fuel cell truck. So when you're getting into away from the like the almost consumer consumer model versus the business or the the the, the I, I need to the transportation model where I need to move goods, I need to make sense, fueling time matters and distance and range and weight, just gross vehicle weight, even for highway and how much of your usable load is getting eaten up by the amount of batteries you need to move a vehicle around that pulls 30 or 40 tons of of cargo. Yeah, exactly. We haul fluids a lot in Saskatchewan. And for example, um, on the shoulder seasons, there are road bands and partial road bands. So there's a significant portion of time where we have to run with half full tanks to move these fluids around, but where the County gives us big fines Mm -hmm. or whatever. So um, if we had 10,000 kilograms of batteries on, on the puller, on the tractor, the semi-truck, then um, we just wouldn't be able to pull anything during those so- shoulder seasons. So a hydrogen fuel cell vehicle is, I think, a much more pragmatic solution for a lot of use cases, especially in cold climates. And, you know, I've been proven wrong on things before, and I'm willing to eat crow if I'm wrong on this too, but th- that's just kind of my current thinking of it. Interesting. 
What, where, where, where would we find, because obviously they exist now. Is this something we're going to find at forklifts that are working inside uh, warehouse environments? Like, where would we see some of this technology at play now? Maybe just not at the scale we're talking about, but where, is there anywhere it's kind of taken hold and been identified that, yeah, this is an actual better version? Well, definitely forklifts are the prime example. There's tens of thousands of them already in operation in the States and around the world. So if you look at, um, yeah, that's that's a very obvious okay. one. I think that large larger things like locomotives, it does not make sense to have cars and cars and cars and cars full of expensive batteries to pull, you know, loads of lumber through the mountains or things like that. You have to have a, a huge amount of power. I also believe that shipping is highly unlikely to, to go towards battery electric and highly likely to go towards either carrying a hydrogen derivative fuel like ammonia or liquid hydrogen. Um, ammonia is much more available today and it's easy to move around today through existing codes and standards and vehicles and tanks. But the um, long-term solution of liquid hydrogen, in my mind, is more elegant. So we'll see okay. if we get there. I think there's some developments of hydrogen ships. In terms stuff. of like the thinking about this curve of you know early adoption or you know all, all the different ways you can break that out, where are we? Are we just are we very early? Are we just kind of on the rise, or has there been lots of different cycles? Just I know technology always contributes to the next curve looking different than the curve before. <laughs> It does, but I actually don't think there's been a huge number of breakthroughs since sort of the last big hydrogen push. One that's significant is carbon fiber overwrap pressure vessels. Those are, you know, a, a pretty meaningful okay. new enabler, but the fuel cells were kind of good enough. Like I think a lot of the, the pieces were known and kind of good enough 20, 25 years ago. What the missing ingredient has always been, and to some degree remains, is where are we going to get all this low-cost, clean hydrogen? And that's where Proton is intending to specialize. Okay, so back to the actual substance itself. So maybe let's take our, our you know, if you want to be the scientist on, on the call here, the, 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 you, you are the expert, I've got you in the chair. You know, you've called, I've heard the word, I've heard you say, and I've certainly read on your website, clear hydrogen, which I hadn't heard before, gray hydrogen, blue, uh, green, kind of break it down for us a little bit in terms of giving people an idea of how to wrap their, even, their head around how this is looked at. <laughs> Sure. Well, if you think about where is hydrogen made from, the, the most straightforward answer is water. Almost all of it today is, get, is just made from water. There are a couple of industrial byproducts and chemical plants and stuff that make some, but that's negligible in terms of global supply. Um, water, to break those very strong bonds in H2O, you need to apply a lot of energy. And the two main ways those are done are chemical reactions, high temperature chemical reactions, and electrolysis, basically electrocuting the water until it until it breaks the bonds and gives until you the it get, until it tells you what you want to know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so today, ninety five percent is done through high temperature chemical reactions, where uh, gray hydrogen is sort of the um, well the historical method where they use they burn natural gas, methane, and add in high temperature steam sort of in the 500 degrees Celsius range, which is heated that way by burning more natural gas. And all the mixture is, is combined together to trigger a reaction called water gas shift. And that gives hydrogen and CO2 as a result. Large volumes of CO2, unfortunately, and that's become very problematic politically and uh, for a variety of factors and reasons, you know, it's, it's not popular to produce CO2. Um, so, some people are doing what's called carbon capture and storage or utilization and storage where they grab some of the smokestack CO2 
and try and make a repurpose it for something or, or bury it in the earth or that type of thing. That adds a lot of cost. They call that blue hydrogen. Um, there's some controversy around it because there are always going to be upstream fugitive emissions of the methane in terms of like where they drill it, how they get it there. And so there's a, and there's also an environmental footprint and a requirement for fresh water. So there's a few things around it that are still a little bit uncomfortable. And it's been, it's fallen out of favor actually in some parts of Europe in terms of what the supply should be. Um, electrolysis, where they basically electrocute the water, <laughs> that's, uh, that's green hydrogen. And that's getting more popular in areas where emissions are um, becoming m much more stringent. And the, there is no uh, feedstock that's directly carbon-based fuel for electrolysis. Okay. It can be done if your grid is coal-powered and you're using that electricity to do electrolysis. Obviously, there's a carbon footprint on an ongoing basis. But if you're doing, for example, solar to electrolysis, the only CO2 that's involved is in the initial setup, you know, making a new road, making a new power line, the construction, the, the foundation, okay. cement and steel. The infrastructure, the, the infrastructure piece. Yeah, exactly. So all of that stuff, though, whether it's green, gray or blue, there's shades of good and bad, but it all has a carbon intensity that's more than zero. So what we're trying to do is at all of our projects at large scale, we inject enough extra CO2 that we get the carbon intensity by life cycle analysis lower than zero. And in that way, um, well, it's, it's, it represents a way to actually decarbonize an entire portfolio faster than you otherwise could. So, for example, if you're making steel, your blast furnace has carbon negative fuel. The more steel you make, the more CO2 you get out of the atmosphere indirectly. That changes the storyline significantly. Totally. So we call anything with a carbon intensity lower than zero by life cycle analysis, clear hydrogen, whether it's our process or somebody else's. Nice. Did you guys coin that phrase or did it, was it, did it exist out there and you guys grabbed on? Like, I appreciate what you just said about, hey, whether it's us or someone else, if you can do that, then you're in this, in this category. How new is the term clear hydrogen? Uh, yeah, we kind of made it up. So, okay, no, no, that's cool. I, I, I was fishing for that just in case that was the case. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, we basically wanted to differentiate, differentiate ourselves. We don't need fresh water, and a carbon intensity below zero really changes the whole equation. Like a spreadsheet looks very, very different in terms of decarbonizing a portfolio. You actually cannot get to net zero if everything in your portfolio has a more than a carbon intensity that's more than zero. So, uh, for example, wind and solar to electrolysis can never get you to zero, much less lower than zero. So um, our process can, and we wanted to draw attention to that uh, differentiation. Well, and up to this point, we've been focusing on a reduction, not necessarily a negative. Like you said, if you don't have anything on the other side of the balance sheet, there's nothing to offset the positive side. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Interesting. So hearing you talk, you mentioned oil and gas infrastructure. I know that just from our past conversations, you're, you're a bit of a globe, international man of mystery. You're traveling the world a lot. Where are we sitting in Alberta on this chain of events or on this, on this journey of what you're talking about versus what you're seeing? Like, where's the rest of the world at? Kind of what's the global perspective for what you're doing? And then we can bring it back to kind of what's happening here at home. I'll start with um, the clarification that I'm a big fan of all things hydrogen because I'm very against air pollution. Okay. So whether it's even gray hydrogen, blue, green, whatever, not burning diesel and gasoline in our cities where it makes us all very sick um, is a good idea. So I applaud uh, all of our uh, hydrogen competitors, no matter what their colors and processes. 
Um, that said, I think that I've noticed as a general trend that areas that are trying to expand natural gas production and the related royalties and sustaining that industry, um, they seem to favor blue hydrogen. Alberta, that seems to be the case in Alberta. Okay. I don't know if, if that's the, the rationale or if there is a rationale, but um, there seems to be a lot of conversations around expanded natural gas production to supply the blue hydrogen uh, that is better for exports and industry. Um, Quebec, for example, has hydroelectricity to electrolysis. And so they're, they're focused on kind of what they have as well. And I, you know, I'm, I'm happy and don't blame any of these places for using what you have to your advantage. Um, I think in the long run, any region that focuses on what is the lowest cost solution will be the most uh, competitive in terms of future energy exports and not just energy exports. Uh, I believe that there's going to be uh, carbon border adjustments and there's going to be a blockchain that looks back to what is the entire carbon footprint of various products. So whether it's lumber or steel or cheese, there's going to be some sort of a thing that verifies the carbon intensity of this is whatever. And, and products that can claim uh, carbon intensity lower than zero will get a, a premium and products that have a very high carbon intensity and multiple components got shipped all over the world before it was finally assembled and wherever will have uh, a very, um, well, there will be a penalty. So that's the game that I think is easy for economists and banks and businesses to track and justify. Mm-hmm. So I think it's going to be implemented if only because it's an easy lever to, to make these comparisons. So in the, in the course of time, I'd like to see um, solutions rise to the top that have the lowest carbon intensity. And yes, I know I'm, I'm biased, <laughs> but it's, it's not just that. As, a, as an Albertan, I'd like to see uh, things that have a good long-term prospect for you know, my kids, my friends' kids, everybody who's, who's going to be here in 30 years. I'd rather this be an extremely robust uh, production and export uh, place where we have just vast amounts of clean hydrogen exported affordably to supply the world. Interesting. I love it. How, when you travel abroad, where where is the rest of the world on this journey, other parts of the world? And, and do you have any kind of perspective on how they see Alberta in, in, in this, in terms of the, I'm always curious as the view from outside the bottle, if you will. Uh, in general, I think Alberta is externally viewed as quite backward focused. There's headlines about, you know, build more oil pipes and, you know, all this kind of stuff. Um, that does not do well for Alberta's clean tech reputation, even though there is a significant amount of clean tech stuff happening here. Um, so, yeah, the, the, there's a most developed countries have hydrogen fueling stations. Alberta currently has zero. Really? Um, you know, there's. Uh, there's a big difference. If you go talk to somebody who their ferries are running on hydrogen, their government's been promoting it for a decade and there's large um, development going on industrially, governmentally, widely supported. The the whole population is trying to vote oil production off the map locally. You know, it's, it's something that's, um, well, the conversations are very different. So, um, yeah, most places are much more 
in my opinion and experience, seeking to try and find near-term, large-scale supply solutions for hydrogen. So um, it's, it's, it's a bit of a chicken and egg challenge. Most of them have already come up with the usage. So there are fuel cell trucks, there's fuel cell ferries, there's fuel cell cars, and there's incentives like crazy uh, to, to implement and use those. Uh, there's still challenges with the hydrogen supply that is growing, especially like electrolysis in Europe and Japan, Korea. Um, but even developing nations, we have a huge amount of interest. So there's um, Africa, South America, all over the place where you wouldn't necessarily expect uh, keen interest. There are groups that are looking at this as, and saying, oh, we'd like to have an export product that commands a premium, is not controlled by OPEC quotas. Um, you know, there, there's a bunch of different ways to look at it. Low-cost, local electricity, where there's maybe challenges with supplying the grid with stable baseload power. It's really hard to go into a village and uh, in somewhere that's not as um, industrially developed and say, well, we'll just do it all with solar or with wind. And then grid stability issues become a massive challenge. So that's one of the reasons we've sold licenses in you know, Vietnam, Thailand, even Mongolia, Myanmar, um, Philippines. There's some of these places that a huge wind and solar developer is wanting to have hydrogen turbines that they can dial up and down. And it's a far, far lower cost path to get their hydrogen from our process than it is trying to do electrolysis while the sun's shining, for example. So places like that, you said that you really like, you, you, part of your model is to capitalize on existing oil and gas infrastructure. But clearly that's probably not the case in all these, like you do have the flexibility that yes, maybe in Alberta we have that and other places, but in all the places you rhymed off, these are new developments or new ways of looking at things. It's not that they're essentially trying to pivot from a different, from an oil and gas kind of energy you know, economy. Yeah, I think there's there's both factors. So those countries do have some legacy wells mm -hmm. and, and abandonment liability okay. challenges. So it, it does solve it all over the place. It solves a few challenges at once. And um, yeah, most of them recognize um, benefits in a few different okay. paths. So curious, I always like to ask this question. Uh, if you had the magic wand in Alberta, because we'll bring this, we'll, we'll, we'll finish, we'll bring this back home. What is there anything that we could, you know, you made some comments in terms of our, you know, our tendency, like a lot of places, to lean on our strengths, natural gas, uh, you know, uh, hydroelectric in Quebec. Is there any wand that we could wave? Is it a government wand? Is it a funding? Is it just even beliefs that we could wave in your mind for what you believe is a path forward? That uh, how could we knock out some of the, the, the obstacles or kind of add some, add the right fuel to this, this journey of, of transitioning to hydrogen playing a bigger part, even here in Alberta? One of them that I've been saying for years, uh, including to politicians, is we need to be allowed to mix hydrogen into our natural gas pipelines. It's okay if it's a very end-use case where the gas is only for sure going to go one direction to a small community or some industrial user. But if you want to get into these main lines, the, the regulator does not allow that today. Still, uh, believe it or not, in 2021. And... Um, I'm I'm baffled by this. I'm surprised by this, and I think that it's it's a bit strange that they can't at least say yes. You're allowed to blend up to one percent hydrogen, or maybe the right answer is two percent. Like just say something very very a very low bar, and then figure out the rest of the details later, or what the escalation will be, or you know consult with everybody about the metallurgy. But it's like one percent is um, 
well within the threshold, very, very conservatively of everybody um, that I've talked to. So it's, it's a bit surprising that that has not happened yet. So that's one magic wand wave that I would start with. Um, If I had a second one, I would say new natural gas pipelines or oil pipelines, including at the community level, need to be hydrogen compatible. The overall cost of installation and and metallurgy and everything is dominated by the work camps and, you know, the the trenching machines and all all of the stuff, the logistics of shipping it somewhere. That's the dominant factor. So if if the metallurgy mix is just slightly more expensive... Who cares? Let's future-proof our, our province because we know that it's a trajectory that the world's going down and we might as well get on board leading it. So that would be my second thing that if I could with wave that, that magic curious, wand. That, with that yeah, magic wand also yeah. have potentially with the right, like good, right PR campaign and education, that feels like it might get us a little bit more social license around pipelines if we're doing it to be more future-proofed and rather than just go a flat-out no because the storyline is very anti right now when it comes to anything like that, infrastructure-wise, it seems. But if you start telling a hydrogen story, that, might be, that might be a better storyline. Like, let's be honest, ultimately, these days, social license matters. <laughs> you, can't, you can't neglect it because it'll bite you. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty hard on environmental grounds to protest against a hydrogen pipeline. It's like, well, if there's a leak, it escapes to outer space or it burns right on site. Um, you know, you, it, the whole thing is um, much, much more straightforward if it's uh, hydrogen pipelines. I agree with you. Yeah. If there's a third thing I would do to uh, maybe incentivize things, part of it's happening already with the okay. federal carbon tax. Um, there, There is already a very strong incentive. If Let's say you're paying whatever, $2 a gigajoule for natural gas. It's higher today, but if it was, if it was $2, um, that's just the energy cost. But now you tack on a significant amount of CO2 tax. Mm based on that power production. If you could pay $2 a gigajoule for hydrogen instead, then, um, and not have to pay that carbon tax, well, that that makes it uh, harder to justify continuing to burn natural gas instead of hydrogen. So um, that's basically our proposition, is we're saying we will give you a discount to what you would otherwise pay for burning natural gas to make electricity. So we're trying to sign long-term offtake agreements so that we can finance the construction of very large-scale hydrogen production. In your mind, is there any, and I don't want to, this sounds like a very finite question. What's our timeline? Like you mentioned, we started talking earlier about like, you know, by 2035, 2040, we're going to have some real consequences to potentially not changing or to kind of just, well, we'll just keep going the same way and kind of hold their breath and hope it works out sometimes. And I know these are big decisions and I'm minimizing them, but is like, you know, I've heard someone say Calgary, we're 10 year late to a 20 year plan kind of thing. Are we, is there something similar going on here <laughs> around the sense of like, wow, by the time we realize and the cost really starts rising and all of a sudden we come into a bit of our own energy, like maybe self-designed energy crisis where we can't afford the cost plus the tax on top of it. Like how far are we away from a kind of a, a mission critical point in time from your perspective? I'm actually terrified about the economic future of Alberta for two main reasons. The first is carbon border adjustments, which have not yet happened, but are highly likely to. We have a very high carbon intensity to our export energy products. We steam, we literally burn natural gas to steam oil out of the ground. Uh, by comparison, and, and you know, a good well in Alberta is a few hundred barrels a day. A well in Saudi is several thousand or tens of thousands of barrels a day. 
Um, so the carbon in, and it just comes at you. You don't have to steam it out of the ground. Like it's just there. Uh, for example, so the carbon intensity border adjustments are going to be economically devastating, but even just the carbon tax ratcheting up through the years is also going to be economically devastating. If we don't change our emissions in Alberta uh, from today's profile, we will have $42.5 billion in additional carbon tax by 2030. $42 billion dragging on the Alberta provincial economy just for carbon tax. Um, that is completely unsustainable. It's going to be catastrophic. And we're talking eight years from now, more or less, little over eight years. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm, doing, I'm doing the math and I'm, I'm, you're making me nervous. I'm starting to sweat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I'm, thank you for helping get this message on, 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 on top of the surplus that we, in our budget, that we currently don't have either. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, it's not like we have an extra $40 billion laying around a year. No. So. No, no kidding. Wow, that's a scary reality when you put that out there, but we're not, it doesn't feel like we're talking about that. Or it's certainly, again, the whole point of the show, but getting people to walk away going, huh, never thought about that. I'm not seeing that in the headlines. I'm certainly don't, I'm not seeing that catching the, maybe you see glimpses of it, but never as, as, as drastic, like to the numbers that you just laid out. It's not a popular message, but it is exactly, you know, run the calculation. That's what you get. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. Run, run, run the math. Yeah. You, uh, Proton, you guys have been around for five, six years. How's the journey? Like, are you starting to see more openness? Like, I don't, I want to leave everybody on that note. We just dropped there. <laughs> we got to spin it a little bit, get it back into like, no, no, I like to leave people with a bit of hope in the future. Are we, are you seeing more uptake? Are you optimistic about the fact that, yeah, we are versus five years ago when maybe people looked at you kind of funny, <laughs> maybe not, but are you getting in the room and then having different conversations now than even you were a couple of years ago? Yes, I am. So I think that the carbon tax announcement last December really changed things. And as that was reconfirmed in the Supreme Court and now the re-election of Trudeau at the federal level, um, people people feel like there's a lot less wiggle room here in terms of how to uh, solve solve the certain challenge that we're dealing with. And then if I, if I think about uh, five, six years ago, Hydrogen was almost nowhere in the media and in stories and in conversations. Uh, even decarbonization as a general concept was this abstract thing that people in Europe were maybe starting to think about because of, you know, getting away from Russian supply of hydrocarbons or something like that. It was very, uh, it's still relatively abstract. Like Germany has like over a hundred fueling stations. Um, lots of, you know, the fleets expanding in many countries around the world. Uh, but even five, six years ago, it was it was less. It was kind of like the concept of the Toyota Prius, like who's going to want one of those little hybrids, right? And now, um, as carbon tax is going up, fuel costs are rising. It's it's a big change to how somebody's lifestyle can be affected, and not just somebody's lifestyle. Industrial drivers. So you have success stories now, like Tesla was still a lot of people were iffy five or six years ago, and then they were the one voice saying we will build electric cars and we're going to be really good at it and so if you if you wanted to support the chevy volt it's not like you would go buy shares in gm five years ago you would go the only one to really invest in five years ago was tesla and there was support for that and they were drinking money from a fire hose because that was like the only option to invest now that they're worth you know whatever they are 600 billion or i haven't looked recently but they're worth a lot something ridiculously large they're well in advance of their um cash flow and i think a whole bunch of these decarbonization concepts are now being recognized for their potential in the similar way as tesla 
So it's not necessarily, if you look at our financial statements or somebody else's financial statements or even Tesla's financial statements, their valuation is not based on their backward looking uh, results. It's looked, it's based on their forward looking potential. And that's something that has shifted a lot in five or six years. And then, um, yeah, now we're talking offtake agreements and people recognizing that, you know, if we don't decarbonize our electric grid, uh, our competitive, our industrial competitiveness will drop to essentially zero. So, um, yeah, Ooh, there's it's it's a, a less history. No, it's an, it's an intense reality going forward. And you're right, the public and with the, you know, the rise of ESG and being kind of a prevalent everywhere and people becoming much more involved in that social license of how we decide as consumers with our own wallets, that's much more real and has a much more direct impact on organizations than it did not, not that long ago. The rise of Tesla being, you know, I saw some examples through the, through the pandemic and just like the rise, the rise in, you know, retail investors, Robinhood and then Tesla almost with two <laughs> graphs that match. Like there's a powerful decisions being made and people are making those with their dollars yeah. based on yeah. what they believe in the future, not necessarily a financial, you know, PL that we're looking at today. Yeah, they're right. And you know, if there is escalating carbon tax, let's say you're looking at your portfolio and you've got a bunch of shares or your, your broker does in some sort of high carbon intensity system, that's kind of like looking at um, coal 10, 15 years ago in your portfolio. Like, oh, geez, do I, how long do I want to hold this? Um, yeah. You know, and, and, you know, answers varied. Some people wrote it, you know, sank with the ship. But uh, I think that very high carbon um, investments have a, a much, much larger risk profile than a lot of clean tech solutions. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, as... Everything's top of mind these days because with social, with so many ways of communicating, this isn't like something that's just kind of left over here and we're not going to talk about it. Everything's on the agenda and uh, certainly on the table when it comes to environmental and what's happening. And so interesting to hear what you guys are doing and, and the fact that you're based the base here in Alberta. And would you say like from a percentage and curious what how much of your work or revenue or however you want to measure it is here at, is here at quote unquote home versus uh, around the world in terms of you guys as a business? Uh, our focus has changed. Basically, you know, I, I heard an, a story from an old guy. He said, uh, you know, there's there's four roads, uh, or, sorry, a road with a hole in it. Uh, the first guy walks down the hole, falls in the hole and dies. Uh, the second guy walks down that, that road and he steps around it and uh, it gets by. The, the third guy comes along and fills in the hole and it goes through this complicated thing. And then the fourth guy comes and goes, oh, I'm going to take a different street. So, um, you know, if there's, if we're being welcomed with open arms into projects elsewhere, without any obstacles, controversy, there's investor support, there's customer offtake agreements, um, you know, we're, we're highly, highly welcome. It's really hard to, to sit around and go, well, no, I'm going to focus on fighting political challenges or convincing uh, an investor sentiment that that wants to believe in the future of bitumen. Um, no, I don't need to convince, you know, if people want to invest in bitumen, they can invest in bitumen, but there's a whole world of investors out there who that's not what they want. And I'd rather go talk to them, frankly. I appreciate that. And I'm, I'm, I'm gathering that they're not necessarily here in Western Canada is what I'm hearing. And I'm, I'm filling in the words for my, there's for a my few, time. there's a few. So we've, yeah, we've yeah. definitely got some, some key supporters uh, individuals primarily who, who see it and love it and uh, want to support us and be a part of our early story as investors. Um, yeah, so that's been great. 
but I think there's been definitely a lot more. And it's interesting because like a lot of the shareholders are, they're reservoir engineers for some national oil company somewhere else and things like that. So, um, it, yeah, it's, it's fascinating to see the, uh, the profile and of different shareholders that we have. Well, people that are in the know and that are looking to diversify and kind of looking at, at, at the road ahead, which I, I appreciate that. Um, for you guys, uh, just curious, and I always like to ask people this as well, like how's talent acquisition? Do you tap into the oil and gas sector, the energy, the energy industry in terms of accessing talent, or do you have to look globally for some of the talent you guys need to do what you need to do? Uh, for what we're doing in Europe, it's mostly focused on trying to find Europeans to know that market well and that kind of thing. Around here, uh, Alberta, Saskatchewan, are all the, let's say, 90 probably 95% of the, our jobs are exactly transferable from oil and gas. We need, you know, regulatory, we need to understand seismic, we understand, you know, drilling, welding, pipe fitting, uh, the, almost everything is directly transferable. Which to me, that's, that's a great story to hear about. We've got such a talent rich province. How do we get, give people opportunities that are maybe don't have that job that they'd signed up for to do for the next X amount of years has changed drastically, but to be able to pivot that last, that 15 or 20 years of career into something that where those skills can be directly transferable and then adapted and then, you know, and built on that to me, that's a great story. We've got such a high talent, high educated, highly skilled province. How do we create those other opportunities for those individuals? So one, they don't have yeah. to leave or be stuck kind of in that like, Hey shit, this, this, this path I'd signed up for has drastically changed. <laughs> Yeah. And in that regard, we have a, a couple of main profiles within our business. One is we, we when that federal wage subsidy program happened, mm -hmm. we thought it'd be great to get a whole bunch of these younger people who are under 30. That was the program requirement. Mm -hmm. And uh, basically, there was people who were just absolutely brilliant and had interesting internships and experience. And it was very, very hard for them to find jobs in industry here. So they would just leave. You know, the, the demographic uh, fleeing is uh, going to haunt Alberta for a long time. But uh, we wanted to bring in a whole bunch of people through this wage subsidy program and, you know, give them a chance. And some of them end up in the field in Saskatchewan. Some of them are in the, a lot of them in the office in Alberta. And it's, it's great. And part of that, you know, they don't have a, a legacy belief in certain things. So there's a, a, a positive enthusiasm that comes with all of that. Right. It's tempered by a whole bunch of old guys and gals. <laughs> so we have, uh, we have a, a crop of people who, a lot of them, most of the older staff work for Proton Canada shares, but they've seen things through their history. Like we hired some of the people from BP who produced crazy amounts of hydrogen in the 80s at the Marguerite Lake demo where they injected pure oxygen. So they know this works because they've done it. And, you know, having them around enthusiastically guiding us uh, with their, their long legacy of experiences, um, it's encouraging and helpful as well. But it's definitely um, a team that we have to build as we, we, we scale up our first site, but we intend to get into more and more production sites in Western Canada and elsewhere also. Which changes the kind of roles you need to from the innovative, you know, new technology or, or old technology brought to new again versus getting into kind of operational support staff who are just like running and operating these facilities as an ongoing basis, which kind of changes the kind of broadens out how much talent you can you can also employ and bring in is just from a pure jobs perspective. Yeah, I agree. Right now we're the spear point, but the whole spear is coming. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> Grant, what's the best way for, uh, I love your insights today and I, certainly, and I love you willing to share your opinions. I do appreciate that. Um, what's the best way for people to learn more about you guys? Check out your website, reach out. What's the, uh, I'm sure we, I hope we've got some curious listeners right now that want to learn more. 
Okay. Well, um, probably our most pressing need, reach out to investor relations at proton.energy. <laughs> nice. <laughs> we also have a info at proton.energy. If you're interested in a license deal, like uh, some local producers like white cap resources, bought a license. Okay. Interesting. There's a few others around here and elsewhere. Um, so yeah, info at proton.energy can stick handle you to the people that are, um, can help the best. So awesome. thanks. Grant, thanks so much for your time today, your passion and, uh, for doing something, uh, you know, that probably is a lot of heavy lifting. I'm, I'm guessing, I'm, I'm guessing basically based on your chat that, uh, this said uh, you didn't just wake up one day and this all came together. You've been driving hard at this thing. So well done. No, thanks very much. Yeah. It's been a bumpy road, but a good one. <laughs> That's awesome. Grant really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks a lot, man. I appreciate it. 